Please do take a seat. And if I can encourage you to uh, take up your Bibles, turn to page 554, Psalm 22. You may also uh, like to uh, turn up at Matthew chapter 27, page 999. I will be referring to that occasionally, but uh, it's quite a bit of gymnastics to turn between the two. So uh, you may just want to jot down uh, on your uh, sermon outlines just where I am pointing you to. That may be easier. Mention the sermon outline, you can hopefully find one of those in your pack of leaflets that you had when you came in. Can't miss the uh, fact from our uh, songs this morning that uh, Psalm 22 points us very much to uh, the first Good Friday. If you're a Christian, you cannot read Psalm 22 and not think about what Jesus endured upon the cross. This psalm is is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, uh, nine times with respect to Jesus' death. So it's not surprising that we do associate uh, Psalm 22 immediately with Jesus. And of course, its ultimate fulfillment is found only in him. And yet we cannot start there. We must start back in the time of David, when David wrote this. Because as we look at uh, what and how he and why he wrote these things, uh, we ourselves will be able to understand these verses even more and be able to feed upon them even more greatly. As we uh, look at the psalm, uh, you'll see that the psalm fairly easily falls into two halves. You may have noticed that as it was read to us. The first 21 verses speak of suffering and huge suffering. But then in verse 22, there is a shift to victory and praise. So verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. And then the final words of the psalm. For he has done it. A statement of achievement. Well, we're going uh, from verse 1 through to uh, verse uh, 31. Let's look at those sort of sections as a whole and to start with the experiences of suffering. I wonder if you noticed uh, how, as we looked at those uh, first 21 verses, how the uh, subject of sets of verses changes or alternates. Uh, Just take, for example, verses 1 and 2. The subject there is all David, isn't it? It is me and my. It is talking, so verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 2, my God, I cry out by day. And then it's immediately uh, followed by a set of verses which have God as the focus. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. So the focus is all God. It goes from him and his experiences through to God and who he is. And we'll find that happening throughout uh, these verses uh, up to verse 21. So you'll see verse 1 and 2 is all about David and his experiences. Likewise, verse 6 to 8. And again, verse 12 through to 18. And then interwoven between the two, between those, uh, verse 3 3 to 5 about God. Verse 9 to 11 about God. 
and again, verse 19 to 21. Those, that sort of interleaving of experience and focus on God tells us that as David experiences this suffering, he looks to God to sustain him through it. He looks to who God is and what he has done and will do. He is strengthened by the word of God. And it's a helpful reminder to us all, isn't it, at the outset, that there's no suffering that you or I may be facing or may face in the future that God, God cannot help us with or sustain us through. And he does that by his word. Here we are reminded to go to the word of God and to take others there too. Words of great comfort, of great understanding and reassurance. We are often quick, I think, to uh, say to people words of comfort and reassurance, but far greater to take them to the word of God and have him speak them to others and to ourselves. David here speaks of suffering in three different ways, uh, and you'll see those under the uh, first uh, main heading there. Spiritual suffering, feeling that God's not there, abandoned by him. Mental suffering, as people give David and Jesus, and of course you'll recognise it yourselves, uh, a hard time for having faith in God, making us try to doubt him. And then verse 12, 3 to 21, the experience of physical suffering, as we look at each of those, we'll see what David suffers and how he is sustained as he does so. So first off, the agony of spiritual abandonment. It's not difficult to see that, is it, in verse 1 and 2. David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and I'm not silent. Whether David was abandoned by God or not, he certainly feels that that is the case. And I'm sure that you and I may have experienced feelings like that from time to time when God seems far off and we feel as though he's abandoned. Our prayers just seem to bounce back either unheard or unanswered. As Jesus hung upon the cross, he himself cried out those words in agony. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's what Matthew records in chapter 27, verse 46. Matthew's quick then to tell us that those words mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It appears that Jesus is being abandoned by God and we'll come back to that a little later on. But notice how David's train of thought doesn't stop. We've noticed it already, that though he is agonising because he feels abandoned by God, yet, yet, verse 3, he says these things about God. He says, you are enthroned as the Holy One, verse 3. Verse 4, in you our fathers put their trust. He remembers that God is holy and that God is faithful. Two important attributes for any of us who feel that we may be abandoned by God. They answer the reason, they give us the reason for why we may feel abandoned and why we may be abandoned, but also give us the hope as to why we are not. First, the Holy One, David speaks of in verse 3. 
God is the Holy One. He recoils at sin. He cannot look upon those who rebel against him. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 reminds us this. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face far from you so that he will not hear. I think that often when we feel abandoned by God, we often blame God. But these verses tell us that the blame lies securely with you and with me. If we feel God is distant, it is our fault. It is our sin or rebellion against him that keeps him at arm's length. Well, if it is sin that keeps us at arm's length and causes God to, as it were, abandon us, why, may you ask, does Jesus, the sinless Son of God, get abandoned by God on the cross? The Bible, the New Testament, is very clear that as Jesus was dying on the cross, he was not dying for his own sins, but for the sins of others. Jesus was dying on the cross. He was being abandoned for your sin and my sin. He was abandoned as God placed the sin for the world upon him. If you read the Gospel accounts, you'll you'll read of that supernatural darkness Three hours, darkness across the whole land. Not a storm, not an eclipse, but a sign of what was going on as God turned his face away from his son. You see, as Jesus was abandoned upon the cross, suffering that agony, he suffered for you and for me. That is why, that is the why, the answer for why we may be abandoned It is because of our sin. And yet, there's another part of David's response that brings assurance for us. David uh, remembers in verse 4 and verse 5 that God is faithful, that his ancestors put their trust in him and they were not disappointed. And the point is that if we are God's people here this morning, we can do the same. For if we have trusted in Jesus that he was abandoned for us, then we will never be abandoned by him. This is God's promise that he will never leave us, never forsake us. Our sin has been paid for if we have believed in Jesus Christ. That is why right at the beginning of our meeting this morning, we prayed in the confession. We said, we deserve your condemnation. That is what we deserve. But Jesus pays the price for us. Great reassurance. So that is where we turn when we feel abandoned. We turn to God. Remember, he's the Holy One. We test our hearts to see if we are rebelling against him. And we receive assurance, if we are in him, that we are forgiven and won't be abandoned. So first, the experience of spiritual abandonment. Second, the humiliation of mental abuse, verse 6 through to 11. It's very clear as you look at verses 6, 7 and 8 that uh, David's faith in God is the basis for others abusing him. They're trying to knock David off course, mocking him for trusting that God will actually hear him, let alone do anything to help him. David feels a worm scorned and despised by people. 
Verse 7, all who see me mock me and hurl insults and shake their heads. Why? Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Those are words that you'll be familiar with if you have read any of the crucifixion accounts of Jesus. They begin, if you're looking at Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 26 as Jesus is arrested, as he is tried, and then as he is hung on a cross, people mocked and insulted him, trying to play with his mind. Just listen to uh, some words from Matthew chapter 27, verse 41. Page 999 if you're turning there. If in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked Jesus, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. The mental abuse is heaped upon the feeling of abandonment that Jesus went through. If you're a Christian person here this morning, you will know that as a follower of Jesus, you will have experienced that abuse also. People will mock you for turning to Jesus and trusting in him as you go through times of trial or pain or suffering. They will say, where is your God now? Jesus endured such humiliation without response. How did he do that? How are we to do that? Just as David did. Verse 9, the second of the yets. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even from my mother's breast. You see, uh, David knows that from the beginning of his life, God's hand has been upon him. And that is equally true for us who have put our faith in God. Yes, God has known us from before we were born. But once we are born again through faith in Christ, then there is nothing that can separate us from him. His care, his personal care and his presence with us need never be doubted. Never a moment passes by when he's not with us. Never an experience of suffering that he's not present with us in and helping us through. That is the reality that David knows that Jesus clung on to God's personal commitment and care. And that means that uh, days won't always be like this with blue skies. Storms will come and they will go. And yet we can trust that God knows us and cares personally for us. It is him who takes us through the humiliation of mental abuse. And so thirdly, to the third experience of suffering, the pain of physical attack. As David moves on, he goes from the mental abuse to physical. And uh, as you look at those verses 12 through to 18, it's appalling to see how far man has fallen from being dignified human beings to being more, no less than vicious animals, wild animals like strong bulls, verse 12, roaring lions, verse 13, and encircling dogs, verse, 12, verse 16. They are bloodthirsty. They are wanting him dead. 
And David is clearly uh, feeling the experience of that personal and physical pain. He feels poured out like water, drained of strength and anything. His strength is dried up. And he feels as though he's going down to the death. It's an awful picture of pain and suffering. And yet this psalm goes far further than the suffering that David ever experienced. We see here David yet again pointing through to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross once again comes into view as we're so easily reminded of the crowd and the soldiers, the religious establishment, all of them crying, crucify, crucify. That is bloodthirsty animal behaviour. And yet as you look through those verses of physical pain, you can see uh, Jesus' crucifixion in all of them. Yes, the animals, but also uh, Jesus, his bones out of joint as he's disfigured, hanging on the cross. His strength dried up. And of course, verse 15 reminds us of how someone rushes to Jesus to give him a sponge with some vinegar in it so that he might be at least relieved of his thirst for a moment. Verse 15 reminds that he'll be laid in the dust of death in a tomb. Verse 16, hands and feet pierced as he's nailed to a cross. People gloat over him. And even as the Son of God on the cross is being executed, the soldiers divide his garments among them. They gamble for his clothing. How does the man or woman or child of God respond? Another but. Verse 19. O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. He remembers that God is his his own personal strength and salvation. Do you see that? Verse 19 speaks of strength. Verse 20 and 21 of deliverance. He looks to God first and foremost to help him endure, to have the strength to endure his suffering. And then he looks to God to rescue him from it ultimately. David did that. Jesus clearly did that. And the amazing thing is that God does act that first Easter. The surprise is that God doesn't act by taking Jesus off the cross. That's what you would expect. But of course, if Jesus had been taken off the cross, he could not have saved us by dying in our place. Our sins would be left unatoned for. We would all be facing God's judgment and his abandonment for eternity. Rather, God takes Jesus out of the tomb on the third day. Jesus' resurrection is the answer to his cry for salvation. I don't know what uh, pains or suffering you are going through or friends of yours are going through. Yes, by all means, ask for relief. Ask for that salvation to come. But trust and ask God for the strength to endure in the meantime. He will hear. He will answer. So the experience of uh, suffering, the experience of David, of Jesus, our experience too. There are words here 
that we can relate to. Words here to sustain us in and through suffering. Words which point us to a God who is committed to us and who will walk with us through it. But these are also words in this psalm of victory. Words of victory. Uh, Verse 21 suggests it. Uh, In our translation, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, Verse 21, the second line of it says, Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Actually, uh, the proper translation is, You have heard. David knows that God has heard. Jesus knows that God has heard. And swift on the back of God hearing our prayer, there is victory. That is where this uh, psalm turns now. And we will look finally in the last few moments at verses 22 through to 31. The expectation of future victory. As we've read of David's suffering, yet we next read that he expects victory. Indeed, the uh, writer to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, quotes these words. And he says they are words spoken by Jesus. Expecting that he himself would sing and declare God's praises. These are words of expectation. Words that victory is assured even before it happens. In our world there are a few certainties. Uh, We saw that a few weeks ago in the world of rugby union. Uh, The England uh, rugby team, they've beaten everyone else so far in the Six Nations Championship. Uh, They only had to beat Ireland and many thought it was going to be a certainty. Uh, Even the sponsors had got them to film a celebration in advance of their match against Ireland. The reality is that they lost. And uh, there was much cheering in the Irish side of my family that day. They lost. Their celebrations were presumptuous and premature. But you know what? David and Jesus' celebrations of victory, they aren't presumptuous. They aren't premature. They are a true expectation of a certain victory. Uh, You can see that marked out in these verses in two ways. Firstly, there's a song of celebration. And second, there is a song of conquest. Uh, In Old Testament times, it was... uh, it was, uh, people were told, in fact, God's word said that if, if uh, a prayer was answered, then you were to have a party. That brings us up short, doesn't it? Most of us don't even thank God, let alone say, wow, look, this is what God has done. And there's a theme of, of praise and celebration, not just by one or two people, but by everybody here in verses 22 to 26. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise him. Verse 23, everybody is to praise God. Why? Well, verse 24, God has answered David's prayer. He hasn't despised or disdained the suffering as afflicted one. That is the truth. God has not despised the suffering of Jesus Christ. His suffering has achieved what he promised it would our salvation. So therefore, verse 25, the theme of my praise is him. Verse 26, all that are satisfied in him are satisfied because of who he is. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. 
They found him. He has sustained them. He has strengthened them. He has saved them and he has saved you and me. And I wonder if you noticed the last line of verse 26. We are satisfied eternally. Through Jesus' death, our hearts are satisfied for eternity. We are given eternity with him in heaven rather than abandoned by him in hell. That is the great news of the cross, of a greatest rescue that could ever be told. If if you know that this morning, your heart should be leaping as we look at these verses. If your heart isn't leaping, it may well be, and the only reason can be that you do not either understand what Jesus has done for you, or you haven't actually taken hold of what he's done for you. For when you know that Jesus' death upon the cross, his abandonment was instead of yours, then that is a source of celebration, not just today, but for eternity. Just in case that is you this morning, let me just point you to the theme of the second part of these verses, verse 28 through to 31. It's a theme of of conquest, a song of conquest. They show us the reality of what God has done And he will do. Verse uh, 27, David says that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Everyone will bow down. Everyone, not just some, everybody. Why? For verse 28, dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations, not just some, over all. He is victorious over everyone. Those who turn to faith in him through Christ and willingly bow the knee to him now will receive eternal life with him. But the reality is that those who refuse to turn in faith now and bow the knee voluntarily in this life will be made to bow the knee and receive eternity in hell. Do you see that? Verse 29. The rich of the earth, yes, they will need to worship him. And all those who live in the dust will kneel before him too. We cannot keep ourselves alive eternally. Only God can do that. And he will give us either heaven or hell. That, you see, is why verse 30 is so important. Future generations will be told about the Lord. That is what is happening here this morning, here and across in the church centre. Future generations after David, after Jesus, are being told about who he is and what he has done. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's what's going on here this morning. We are hearing of God's righteousness. Us receiving the righteousness of God through his abandonment of his son. He has done it. Do you remember those words Jesus cried before he died? He said, it is finished. Verse 31 is right to end there. So in the face of uh, Christ's victory, of God's victory, surely it is folly, is it not, to do anything other than to bow the knee to him, here and now. If God is all victorious, we cannot take him on and win. You will lose These final words of conquest and celebration tell us that much. And if you've yet to bow the knee to God through Christ, don't put it off, please. 
See the amazing consistency of God's plan and his word. How 900 years before Jesus came, God promised this would happen. Not just in wishy-washy words, but with precise details. He has done it for us and he promised he would. See what Jesus endured for you on the cross and turn to him now. Bow the knee before it is too late and receive the salvation he suffered for you. And if you have bowed the knee to Jesus today, can I encourage you to rejoice in what he's done? Encourage you to use this psalm in times of suffering, to fix your eyes on him and allow his word to sustain you. And to be encouraged, victory is certain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider those words again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words, yes, written by David, but pointed to Christ. We realise yet again what he suffered that we need not. Please, Lord, help each one of us to see that for ourselves this morning. Save any of us from being deluded about that. Help each one of us to claim these words for ourselves that he was abandoned, that I need not be. Help each one of us to bow the knee before you today, Lord. Turn our hearts to you. Sustain those who are suffering, Father. And keep them on to the end. And we just ask all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Our final uh, hymn.